I speak to you this day in the name of God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Amen. My goodness, this is one of those days where I wish y'all didn't have to wear those masks and I could read your facial expressions. Everybody is wondering whether this sermon will be about the elephant in the room, so I might as well name it. We have experienced a hugely stressful election season. The campaign included moments that just a few short years ago we'd not have been able to concoct or imagine. Finally, a candidate has prevailed. Though he is not the candidate some would have chosen, he is flawed, his age makes us uncomfortable, he gets on the couch even though he knows he's not allowed. He chases the cat incessantly. I am, of course, referring to the hard-fought mayoral race in the town of Rabbit Dash, Kentucky, which so mesmerized the nation these past weeks. Rabbit Hash officials have, as of this morning, called the race, and the new mayor is a six-month-old French bulldog named Wilbur. It turns out that Rabbit Hash, Kentucky has a habit of electing dogs. Wilbur succeeds Mayor Brynn, a pit bull, who served from 2016 to 2020. Describing Wilbur's transition plans, campaign manager and dog owner, Amy Nolan says of the mayor-elect, quote, he's done a lot of interviews locally, he's had a lot of pets, a lot of belly scratches, and a lot of ear rubs. See why I wish I could read your facial expressions? <laughs> Humor is a blessed momentary relief, I hope, from the crush of emotions that have accompanied and continue to accompany not only this election, but our national and civic life on the whole. The past five days have simply compressed all of those emotions into a much narrower wavelength so that people across the political aisle have experienced the oscillation of joy and heartbreak or fear and relief in such quick succession that we're exhausted. As I stand here before you, I myself have gotten precious little restful sleep this past week, as Jill Thompson will confirm. At a cocktail party just before the coronavirus pandemic, do you remember that? <laughs> I heard someone ask with regard to our national circumstance, why can't we just get along? Now I believe that the speaker intentionally borrowed his words from Rodney King. And that's a tantalizing hope. Why can't we, despite our deep differences and the vitriol that infects our shared life, just get along? I think the question too often really means something like, why can't the world just stay the way it is, comfortable for me? Why can't others simply acquiesce to my preferred vision for our country? Then we'd all get along. Well, we recognize the inadequacy of that request when we take just a moment to remember the heartrending circumstances in which Rodney King first uttered those words. They weren't for him superficial. He'd been beaten by police officers and in the weeks thereafter as he was pushed and pulled and manhandled anew in the media, his cry was more like the psalmist's 
How long, Lord? How long? We can't just all get along. Not in the superficial sense. Because there are competing visions for the United States that undergird our disagreements. Those visions are important. When he spoke here just a couple of years ago, Episcopalian and author John Meacham said, it is as if various people and parties are competing for the soul of America. So when the stakes are that high, pretending that they don't exist or that they don't matter is not an option. So what are we to do? Well, our church, the Episcopal Church, it actually grants us some resources that many other traditions lack. Henry VIII's desire for an annulment from Catherine of Aragon and the subsequent series of events involving both church and state in 16th century England led to civic rancor and broken relationships and factions and ultimately gruesome deaths. And Tudor England bears more than a few rough analogies to our own time. In the late 1550s, however, after the English people had exhausted themselves with mutual recrimination and disdain, the newly ascended Queen Elizabeth, through force of her own healing character, said, Enough! And Elizabeth established a new norm, one that provided a wide latitude of belief and practice, both religious and civic. And she declared that going forward, the English people would, no matter what, stand together as one nation. From then on, in English religious and national life, schism, walking away or walking apart, schism became a greater and a graver sin than heresy. In other words, the English people would commit to work together even when they disagreed in shared identity through any challenge. Their disagreements would be real and hard fought, but they would not break communion with one another. The English only forgot that once after that. And the English Civil War, a century later, quickly reminded them of Elizabeth's wisdom. And this has served England exceptionally well for the intervening half millennia. I dare say, without Queen Elizabeth in 1559, a unified England could not have withstood Hitler in 1940. In our own context, the motto of the United States is E Pluribus Unum, from many. We are one. The motto appears on our currency, it's on your passport, not that you've had that out lately. It's on the official seals of all three branches of our federal government. In the past few weeks, presiding, our presiding bishop, Michael Curry, has honed in on this. 
Bishop Curry traces the origins of E Pluribus Unum to the great Roman orator and statesman Cicero. See, in the year 44 B.C., Cicero wrote a letter to his son outlining the obligations of one who loves his country. Remember that. And Cicero said, Unus fiat ex pluribus, which translates, when each person loves the other as much as himself, it makes one out of many. Imagine that. Our national motto is not about rugged individualism. And it's not about wishing that everybody else would get on board with my vision for the country. It's ultimately about love. E pluribus unum. When each person loves the other as much as himself, it makes one out of many. So how do we do that? Well, we don't give up our convictions or our unflagging efforts to mold our nation into a more perfect union. But we do remember that we are bound together in love with every one of our fellow Americans. Every one even with those with whom we disagree, even with those whose opinions we may believe are deeply misguided. Now our culture, including and especially social media, encourages us to react to one another with knee-jerk shibboleths in response to someone else's opinion. We're quick to cry socialism or fascism or, you just want to take away my health care. Or, you just want to take away my guns. But what humility might each one of us discover if we push back against our visceral reactions and put on lenses that seek to see the other in the most positive light? What avenues for understanding might appear if we resist imputing the worst motives to our neighbors? How might our conversations track differently if we begin by granting that the person with whom we speak hopes for a United States that strives for the well-being of all? Now, I am not naive. Not everyone has virtuous motives. Not everyone around the water cooler and not everyone in the halls of power. But I believe that most, the overwhelming majority, do. Including those whose political opinions baffle and discomfit me. And if they do, if they, like me, want for love of all to render one out of many, 
then there is still gracious and ample room to speak together and walk together and work together toward making these United States a light for other nations. We will have a new president in January and likely a new chapter of shared government between the parties. This grants us new opportunity if we'll be open to it. Each American, from wherever one stands across the political spectrum, can and should argue vociferously over competing visions, laboring tirelessly for justice and a truer approximation of God's kingdom on this earth. Now, if in the process we commit to walking and working together, then the outcome won't be entirely one vision or the other, but something in between. And it seems to me that there used to be a word for that in American politics. And yet, the fact that we have made the effort committed to one another is itself a sign of the inbreaking of God's kingdom. And we must never forget that. We here are Anglicans. And as such, our religious life has for 500 years been bound up with civic life. And so perhaps we will have eyes to see the way in which Cicero's words precedingly echo Jesus' own words. When each person loves the other as much as himself, it makes one out of many. At the end of the day, then, e pluribus unum is a call to follow in our civic life the gospel of Jesus and the Lord of love. Beyond any political election, that's the real choice always before us. In our visions for America, but also in the ways that we interact with one another and define or seek to understand those with whom we disagree. Do we serve the Lord of love? Well, I believe in this household of faith. The answer to that question is clear, friends. And that gives me hope on this day of resurrection. Amen.